Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, Episode 8, The Starving Time. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want it to continue, then please support it. You can do this by signing up for membership at thehistoryofpodcast.com and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. Membership only costs $5 per month and gives you access to the members-only podcast. Before we get into things today, I want to address something we talked a bit about last week. On Twitter, pronunciation has caused a bit of a stir. We've been talking about what the show is going to do about pronunciation in the future, so feel free to send me a message if you have an opinion. But two words which have really stood out to you guys, which I find pretty funny, are firstly, aluminium. The British say aluminium rather than aluminium because we spell it with two I's. But the big one, which some people are pretty gobsmacked about, is that we pronounce lieutenant as lieutenant. Spelt exactly the same, there is no F in lieutenant. It's just because of a very interesting linguistical curiosity. The lu bit of lieutenant derives from the Latin locus, which means place. This explains the expression in lieu of, it just means in place of. It made its way into English through Old French. Now, here's where things get confusing, because it's not known exactly why the British pronounce the U as an F, but it seems that in Old French the two letters were very closely related. This is sort of understandable. U in Latin could also be a consonant. This consonant later became the letter V in English, but the consonantal U is, in Germanic languages, very closely related with the letter F. Just look at the word father, which in German is Vader. Darth Vader, or Vader has father in his name, so his relationship with Luke isn't that much a surprise, but it seems that a Germanic reading of the U led lieutenant to be pronounced lieutenant by the English. It's really strange, and it's the only word I know of with a hidden F disguised as a U in the English language, but if you know of any others, then please send me an email, because I'm really interested in this. I just hadn't thought about it very much until you guys mentioned it. But anyway, back to the narrative. The Jamestown project had not been going well. The backers in London were not happy with the results, and last time out we saw the Virginia Company reinvent itself in an attempt to fix the underlying problems. The scale of the expedition, the leadership, and travel. The result of this transformation came to fruition in early June 1609. Two and a half years previously, three ships set sail for Virginia. The 100-ton Susan Constance, the 40-ton Godspeed, and the 20-ton Discovery. This time, eight ships were setting sail, commanded by the 250-ton Sea Venture. Lord Delaware had been made the first Lord Governor of Virginia last time, but he was to set sail later in the year. For the moment, the interim governor was to be his lieutenant governor, Sir Thomas Gates, who we introduced last week. He was aboard the Sea Venture, but the ship was commanded by Newport. 
Also travelling were the Diamond, which was the second in command, commanded by Radcliffe, the Blessing, captained by Archer, the Unity, the Lion, the Swallow, the Virginia, and the Falcon, which was commanded by Nelson and Martin. Other names of importance are Sir George Somers, who was to be the Admiral of Virginia, William Strachey, a writer, Reverend Richard Book, the Minister for Jamestown, and John Rolfe, who will have a very important role in our story. This was a big expedition. I can't stress this enough. 500 settlers were on board. They set out from Plymouth and sailed along the English coast before turning southwest until they reached 26 degrees latitude and then sailed west. It was a very hot voyage and there was disease, but things went pretty well until July 24th, when the ships were hit by a great storm, which may have been a hurricane. It's thought that Strachey's description was the inspiration for Shakespeare's Tempest. This was a disaster. Hurricanes cause significant damage to modern vessels, so just think how a 17th century wooden boat would hold up. The flagship, the Sea Venture, was damaged and began to take in water. People panicked. Strachey thought they were going to die, but Gates kept his cool. He put the men to work around the clock, clearing out the water and threw their belongings overboard. But still, the Sea Venture continued to sink. When all looked lost, the miraculous happened. The sky began to lighten, and they saw land. The storm had blown them wildly, of course, and into the Bermudas, an archipelago of small islands about 600 miles off the North American coast, which were uninhabited. The men of the Sea Venture were pretty depressed. It was widely known that Bermuda was an evil place, but it was land, so 150 or so of them disembarked and set themselves up on an island they named St. George's. Very soon they realised just what a paradise Bermuda was, that it had bountiful food. They constructed cabins, and Gates sent a small ship to Jamestown in September, asking for help. There were a couple of conspiracies by some who didn't want to leave Bermuda, but Gates was a seasoned commander. He was able to swiftly end the mutiny. When no news came from Jamestown, they assumed that their ships had gotten lost, and so they started work building two more over the winter. They soon began to suffer the same problems of factionalism as Jamestown had suffered, Gates and Somers not getting on in particular. We shall leave these men here for the moment, and return to Jamestown. Once Argyll arrived at Jamestown in mid-July 1609, he informed Smith of what was coming. But all this was based on the Sea Venture arriving as part of the Third Supply. But it didn't. It was stuck in Bermuda. Instead, the Unity, the Lion, the Blessing and the Falcon arrived at Jamestown on August 11th, shortly followed by the Diamond and the Swallow. Straight away, the infighting started. Smith was convinced that the leaders of the new arrivals, namely his old adversaries, Radcliffe, Martin, Archer, had poisoned the minds of their crews against him to usurp his presidency. 
while the new arrivals believed that Smith was consorting with the Mariners to secure his support without acting appropriately to the other gentry. While they waited for the Sea Venture to arrive with Gates or for Lord Delaware, the gentry proposed that Delaware's brother, Francis West, lead the expedition once Smith's presidency expired. Smith was able to go along with this since it would leave him in charge for the moment. He then removed the possibility of further arguments by, well, removing the people who would cause those arguments from Jamestown. The new arrivals had quadrupled the size of the colony to 400. Jamestown couldn't supply that many. They needed to disperse, so West would set up a base with about 120 men at the falls, and Percy and Martin would go downriver to Nansimond, with 60, dropping the number of men at Jamestown to a much more manageable 250. Nansimond was an island downstream of Jamestown. The English tried buying the island off the locals, but the chief had no interest in this, and instead killed the messengers. This prompted the English to just take the island. The operation quickly turned very violent. As for West, he set up next to the river with six months of food. Smith visited the next week, and thought it was too low-lying. The place could very easily flood. He recommended they move to higher ground, at a village he secured possession of, and Smith says that this was greeted with open hostility by West's men. Smith was forced to leave, but when the garrison was soon attacked by the Powhatans, it was realised just what a bad location had been chosen. The men then listened to Smith's advice, but West appears to have visited Jamestown while this was going on, and he was furious to learn of the relocation when he returned. He then moved them back to his original fort, and Smith left the village. So, what was going on here? Smith must have known how much local resistance these new forts would create. What was he thinking? Perhaps he was trying to discredit his rivals by sending them on expeditions he knew would fail. Perhaps he was trying to set himself up to save the colony? It was likely some sort of gamble to save his influence in Jamestown before he was removed from power. This would fit with his treatment of Newport. Smith had been vital to the colony's survival, and his ideas of practicality were crucial, but he had made too many enemies. When he was on his way back from visiting West's fort, a match fell onto his lap. His powder bag exploded. He was terribly burnt, and he dived into the river to try and extinguish the flames. When they pulled him out of the water, he was more dead than alive. Martin, Radcliffe and Archer were almost certainly behind the attempt on his life, but he lived. They wrote up a list of charges against him, and put him on the ships returning back to England. Somehow, Smith survived. While the company would not follow up on the accusations against him, and was going to keep the Virginia Company going, John Smith would not be allowed to return to Jamestown. He has been the first real centrepiece of our narrative, but he will now exit our stage. He has no further role to play in the story of the United States. We are now around the end of 1609. Things were not going well. Anywhere. 
Gates was lost in Bermuda. In London, there was panic among investors over what was going on in Virginia and about where Gates was. Meanwhile, 1609 had been a year of drought in Virginia. There were more food shortages, both amongst the English and the Powhatans. Martin's settlement at Nansimond was a disaster. Martin fled back to Jamestown, his second-in-command was killed, and the fort was abandoned. Only 30 of the original 60 made it back to Jamestown. West's fort had also suffered heavy attacks, and he had fled back to Jamestown as well. The only outer settlement left was Fort Algernon, which had been set up at the mouth of the James River to see ships which may sail into Chesapeake Bay. The 400 colonists in August had now dropped to 300. Since Smith had gone, Gates was presumed dead, and there was no idea when Delaware would arrive, George Percy was elected president. His biggest problem was lack of food. They would soon run out completely. So he sent out two parties to negotiate. One was commanded by Radcliffe, the other by West. Both ended in disaster. Radcliffe was ambushed, and almost his entire party was killed. Radcliffe had a particularly horrible end. While he was still alive, the Powhatan women scraped the flesh off his bones and burnt it in front of him. Not a good way to go. As for West, he managed to turn a friendly tribe into enemies by killing some of them, and then his men mutinied and fled back to England in the Swallow, the best ship the English had. In a few months, through death and desertion, Jamestown lost another 130 colonists. Jamestown was blockaded by the Powhatans and Nansimons. Famine hit the colony hard, and there are even stories of cannibalism. Then, thrown into the mix, was plague brought over from England in the Diamond. I can't imagine how awful this must have been. In May 1610, the Powhatans and Nansimons lift their siege to plant crops, allowing Percy to check up on Fort Algernon. What he found appalled him. Fort Algernon had plenty of food. They were actually saving up food to keep them going on a voyage back to England, and were fattening their pigs with the excess. Percy was furious about how many lives could have been saved. He told them that he was going to move half the people to Fort Algernon immediately, and when they improved, he would take them back and send the other half. If there were still deaths, they would just abandon Jamestown altogether and move to Fort Algernon. But, before Percy could do anything, two ships sailed into the Chesapeake. It was the two ships Gates had sent from Bermuda. After rebellion in March, in which Gates had executed those involved, he and Somers gathered up the settlers and they set sail in two ships they had been constructing, the Deliverance and the Patience, and set sail for Virginia. The news was mixed for them. Part delight that the rest of the convoy had made it, part dread when they heard of the conditions. Gates sailed upriver and landed at Jamestown. The settlement was a mess. Of the 400 colonists there in August 1609, only 60 were left alive nine months later. I hope it is abundantly clear why 1609, 1610, 
is called The Starving Time. It had destroyed the colonists. They had lost every trace of civilization over that winter and had turned into savages. Gates realised he had only one option. Jamestown had to be abandoned. They would sail for Newfoundland and then back to England. Gates buried the cannons, meaning that this would only be temporary, not that the colonists saw things that way. He had to have his guard make sure that no one threw a match as they left. They fired a round of shots to mock their farewell, and at midday, on June 7th, 1610, they set off home. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe for membership at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can like the show's Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and if you want to contact me in any way, feel free to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.